0: Friends, I am Steve Osborne, and you are listening to the very first episode of Monolith Seeker. Thank you so much for checking this out. And, uh, yeah, this is something I'm really excited about. I've been talking to friends about and thinking about for a long time now. So I'm happy to be getting it off the ground, finally. And, um, yeah, with this first episode, I guess I'm just going to kind of try to jump into what I want the show to be about, where I would like to see it go, and give you a bit of history about myself and the things that I've been linking into lately. So the whole premise of the show, as I see it, is to be talking about reality-shattering ideas. Um, Events, ideas, information, whatever it may be, whatever you come across in your life that basically changes your entire outlook on everything that shifts your whole paradigm in a moment or over time, however it works out, but something that really makes you have to rebuild your entire world. And I love those moments. I live for those moments. I think they're exciting. And they're fun. And that might sound a little bit masochistic to some people, but I really do enjoy them. I mean, they hurt at times, like when they first start, when the, you know, initial cracking starts, then sometimes it can be a real bummer. It can be really painful, but as you start to disassemble it and realize that there is a way to put back the pieces or put back completely different pieces or build something entirely different, it gets exciting. It can be really fun to dig through that process, and I guess that's why I kind of chose the name... Um, If you haven't noticed by looking at the artwork or just the name of the podcast, Monolith Seeker um, I'm pulling from the imagery of 2001 A Space Odyssey And very quickly, if you haven't seen it before There's two scenes that are kind of pivotal that I would like to mention really quick The first scene is probably the most well-known scene in the movie It's in pop culture all over the place The Simpsons did an episode where they kind of make fun of it um, and that is the scene where you first see the monolith, the thing that the movie is essentially about. Um, the first time you encounter it, it is, uh, you're kind of following prehistoric uh, primate ancestors of human beings. It's these apes kind of wandering around, and they wake up one morning, and right where next to where they had been sleeping in this gorge, there is... Just this huge black monolith that just appeared out of nowhere. They have no idea where it came from, and they're very scared of it at first. They start to move towards it, and you can tell there's a lot of tension. The music is really crazy, and it gives the impression that the energy coming off of this thing is really electrifying. And they have no idea what to do with this. It's breaking their reality. It is changing them right in front of them and they all just start freaking out and screaming and running around in circles and it is the perfect illustration of what those breaking moments can be like what it can be like when your reality just completely crumbles in front of you or inside of you or wherever you keep your reality (laughs) it's a it's a perfect illustration of that and you know as that scene progresses as we're staying with these ape ancestors of ours Uh, You see one of them kind of break off and, you know, seems to be contemplating what is going on now. Like if that can happen, if monoliths can just fall out of the sky and, you know, appear and change everything I know about the universe, then what else is there? And as this guy starts digging around, he's just kicking over dirt and looking through some bones. He realizes that. You know, in this pile of bones, there's a big enough bone that can be used as a tool. And he starts figuring out how to smash other things with it. And it's kind of, I think, a good illustration in that point of how you can start to rebuild. You can start to look around and figure out, like, the world that you're in. And if one thing changed so drastically, then everything else can change too. And that's up to you as to how you want to look at it from now on. And... Yeah, that's the first scene, I guess. And then the second scene is kind of the flip side of this. So in the movie, um, it's called 2001 A Space Odyssey because when it was written, the book was written. I can't even remember how long ago, but the movie was made in the 1970s. The book was written well before that. And uh, 2001 was the distant future to them. So in this movie, the, uh, the distant future, humans are traveling through space in this you know, crazy spaceship. They have a lot of beautiful shots of it. They uh, are going towards an anomaly that they found on some moon or planet, I can't remember which. But uh, they arrive there, they get out, and they put on their spacesuits, and they're going to take note of this thing, and it's the monolith again. This unfathomable, amazing thing that fell out of the sky once again, the thing that sparked the evolution of humanity, is what is implied in the movie we come in contact with that thing again and because our lives are so automated they have a uh, an ai running everything on the ship they just don't care they're not connected to it whatsoever like they approach it and the music you know that kind of implies the energy that was happening in the beginning of the movie uh the music's still there it's still giving off this crazy vibe but they're just not in touch with it they just don't care they kind of touch it they uh you know take whatever samples they need to they take a selfie with it and you know thumbs up or whatever and then they just pack up and get back on the ship and it does not phase them at all and again like i said i think this is the perfect example of what the flip side of that can be because something that can change my reality and break my whole view and make me have to reorganize my life entirely could just be a funny anecdote to somebody else. It could just be something that they see and think, Okay, that's cool. Well, I'm glad I saw that, but uh, I'm going to go back to my life exactly how it was, and this isn't going to affect me at all. And those things happen every single day. And that's really what I want to focus on in this show. Because lately it seems like everywhere you turn, something is changing. Something is shaking up. We're seeing the cracks in our society. There's been so many political awakenings. There's been so many social awakenings. There's been so many health awakenings and people looking deep into crazy conspiracies that, um, well, they don't vibrate with me at all. I I, <laughs> I don't get down with most of them. But uh, I, I can just say that, like, I think that this is all symptoms of a more existential problem that we're all going through. We're all looking at our lives and our collective societies that we have built and thinking what the hell are we doing? Why does it look like this? Why is it so messed up and and skewed? And what can we do to make it better? And, you know, what's the point? Why are we here? All of this kind of boils down to like the basic stuff of life. Like, what does it all mean? And that's been causing a lot of people, myself included, to have somewhat of a spiritual awakening. And that's where I'm at right now and what I want to talk about. Uh, The ideas that I've been coming in contact with since I started acknowledging the more spiritual aspects of my life have really reshaped me. They have shattered old paradigms and old ways of looking at the world and put new things in their place uh, in ways that i never imagined possible Um, and that's what i like (laughs) like i said before that's that's what i'm addicted to so that's what i want to talk about and it's what i've been talking about to so many people i talk my friends ears off i talk my family's ears off And I feel like I need a healthy place to put all of this and to focus all of this energy. So that's what this show is going to be about. And I would like to take this time to say that if that is not the page that you are on, if that's not what you want to focus on, then please do not feel obligated to listen to this show. We might be friends that have met each other through playing music together or working together or wherever, I'm not famous, I don't have any kind of reach at all, so uh, if this is not the the vibe you're on right now, the wavelength that you're on, then feel free to not listen to this. It is If it's not your cup of tea, don't worry about it, there's no obligation. It is not going to hurt our friendship whatsoever. This is just a place for me to vent and hopefully talk to people about the things that uh, I really care about and that are coming from my heart. Because that's really what this is, is me trying to just say what's on my heart in the most honest and straightforward and uh, hopefully the least cumbersome way possible. At least that's what I'm going for. So, yeah, I guess the best place that I could go from here would be into a little bit of my background and how I got to where I am. Uh, I guess I can explain my spiritual journey, which really started at childhood when I was raised Seventh day Adventist. And if you're not familiar with that, you've never heard of it before, it is a uh, kind of a chapter of Christianity that, as I used to like to explain, was basically all of the not-fun parts and uh, legalistic, dogmatic parts of being Christian mixed with all of the not-fun parts and legalistic and dogmatic parts of being Jewish. And it's just rules. It's rules after rules. And everything is kind of designed to make you feel hopeless. And it, it just wasn't fun. It wasn't fun to grow up that way. And I don't know a whole lot of happy Seventh-day Adventists. But that's just coming from my perspective. Um, I don't know many Seventh-day Adventists at all anymore. So, um, yeah. Growing up that way was really rough because I was given this whole picture of God that was basically just he's keeping a ledger. And it's just tallying everything you ever do wrong And basically ignoring everything you do right, he's just waiting for you to repent for everything that you do wrong. And, you know, there's heaven, there's hell, there's angels, there's the devil. And really, we're just kind of left to our own devices. And unless we are constantly repenting and praying, there's always the chance that, you know, if you die without a repented sin or if Jesus comes back suddenly to take all of the followers up uh, and you haven't repented all of your sins, then you are just going to go to hell. And that's all there is to it. And there's also this whole thing about the 144,000, which I know Jehovah's Witness believe in and um, some other people as well. Some Seventh-day Adventists believe in it, but some don't. Uh, basically, it just means like a lot of people believe that there was a tally of only 144,000 people that will be going to heaven. And I don't know, all of these things rattling around in my brain just made it feel really hopeless and pointless to even try because uh, there's already been so many generations of people that have lived, and I'm sure that at least 144,000 of them deserve to go to heaven before me. And uh, besides that, I was not wired to constantly keep track of my sins and pray. It's a really hard thing to do. It's hard even now that I'm not now that I'm trying to be like conscious and present and meditative in my daily life. That is hard to do. And it's something I want to do. I'm not fearing punishment. It's something that I'm actually trying to do. And it's really hard. And I was being indoctrinated with this stuff when I was, you know, in preschool. So for me it just seemed really frivolous. It was like, well, what's the point? Like, I guess I'll go to church because that's what my family wants me to do and that's what all my friends are doing, but I really don't have any hope specifically that I'm going to make it to heaven because I just don't think I'm good enough. There's no way. I like doing bad things. I like being mischievous. I was a little kid. I you know, I don't know. I liked watching Ninja Turtles and shit. Like that that wasn't that wasn't a good thing to do in my church. So Uh, yeah, that was a pretty complicated thing to break out of, but it did eventually happen. Um, all of this was happening while I was living in Tennessee. I was raised just outside of Nashville in Tennessee. And when I was about 13 years old, 12, 13 years old, we moved to Ohio, uh, just outside of Cleveland in Lorain County. And when we moved there, we started going to a non-denominational church. And if you're unfamiliar with what that is, it is about as regular, uh, just non-confrontational Christian as you can be. Like there is uh, pretty much just open arms to most beliefs. We kind of keep it middle of the road so that we don't really tip anybody off too far in any direction. But it was way more freeing. But when we first got there, I was not able to accept those teachings. It was really hard for me coming out of a Seventh-day Adventist church. I thought, what's the point in even going to another church? Because if, it's, if they're wrong, then I'm just going to go to hell. And I was wasting my time with these weird people at this weird church anyways. But I eventually had a moment that was the first of many moments that I can remember now that felt like something outside of me was showing me something new. Something was reaching into my life and changing my outlook. Uh, At the time, I considered it to be the Holy Spirit because that was the worldview that I had. That was what the universe looked like to me, was everything was uh, this God outside of me that used its Holy Spirit to communicate with me. And that's what I thought was happening. The Holy Spirit was coming into my life and making the old teachings uh, feel like they weren't true anymore, and making the new teachings that I was receiving at this new church uh, really bond with me. I felt them in my heart, and I just had this moment where my entire worldview switched so quickly. It wasn't even like there was time for my old world to crumble and the new world to be built. It was just like, bam, let's flip it over. Like Everything's different now, and it felt crazy. I was just so excited because this new faith that I had found, this new uh, teaching, this theology that I had found in this church was felt a lot more free. It felt like I was able to be a lot more myself. I didn't have to be praying constantly and looking over my shoulder for Jesus to be coming back and sending me to hell at any moment. It was essentially, you know, you believe the same thing we believe. You acknowledge the same things that we acknowledge. So you can just go to heaven. Like, that's all there is to it. But and it's a big but, now you have to just kind of work on being a better person and reflecting this thing, being a a good missionary of this new belief, if you want to be a good Christian. And that's where the hangups came in. That's where I started, you know, I was going through puberty while I was in this church. So I was having sexual thoughts. I was, you know, looking at porn. I was masturbating. I was doing all these things that I felt guilty for immediately afterwards. I felt terrible. I thought that I was the worst person on the planet and that I was the only person struggling with these things. And even in my most honest moments with other people in that church, I couldn't tell them that I was struggling with these things because I felt like I was the only one and I was going to be judged so harshly for these things. So um, I kind of just it made me build my own prison around myself and constantly be judging myself because I thought God was judging me too. And it was really hard to break out of. I really, um, I don't know. I I just kind of gave up on trying to be better. And I was like, well, I guess getting to heaven is good enough. But I still wanted to know as much as I could about how the universe worked in this way of thinking. So I went to Bible studies and I hung out with a lot of people from church because I wanted to talk about these things. They were interesting to me. But um, really, all of that kind of came to a close um, around my senior year. I still believed in God. I still had the exact same beliefs that I had, you know, in this big change. But the thing that happened was basically my family was going through a lot of personal things. And the church got entangled in all of those things and took sides And at the same time that there was a schism in my family, there was also a schism in the church and it split apart. So it just kind of fell apart and we stopped going and stopped really communicating with those people. And I was able to lean into more of my music friends, more of the people that I knew that were going to shows and playing in bands and things like that, because that was my real passion, you know? And, and that kind of carried me over into my next big change. So, um, A few years after I graduated, maybe just a year, I moved out to Cleveland and started working at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, it's a huge hospital on the east side of Cleveland. And I was delivering nursing supplies, uh, third shift. It was like 3 a.m. to 11 a.m. It was miserable. I hated it. But a good punk friend of mine got me the job and uh, he hooked me up. So I was just grateful to be out there and making money and, you know, able to survive because this is my first time moving out. And while I was working there, uh, there were some older guys there, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s that all believed the same things I believe. So I would get in these pretty deep theological conversations pretty regularly with these guys. And at first it was really cool. It was encouraging to have other people there that saw the world the same way I did And the more and more it went on, the more and more I started to realize that we were all saying the exact same things and nothing was being expanded upon. Nobody's minds were changing. Nobody was growing from these conversations. It was just us talking. And for all I could tell, these guys had believed the same things since they were my age or earlier. So what I started to see was if these guys have been in this for this long and nothing has changed. Nothing has grown for them. Then where am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to spend the next 40 years of my life just with no theological growth whatsoever, no spiritual growth whatsoever? And that thought, that idea kind of scared me. I was like, wow, this is, this seems kind of like a dead end here, but this is what the world is. This is what the universe is. So what can I do about it? But at the same time, I got this job through a punk friend of mine. And he was a pretty devout atheist. And I don't know. We we would have some good conversations about things where there was a little bit of, you know, gentle ribbing back and forth, making fun of each other. But we had some, like, really, like, honest conversations as well. And we would sit and listen to each other. And uh, he would show me articles on things and, like, just make me think. And that's where a lot of my growth was happening. Like, I was hanging out with these people that believe the same things as me and should have been more advanced. But my growth was happening when I was engaging with somebody who believed the total opposite of me. And um, so, I don't know. After a while, all this kind of died down and we weren't really talking about much. I was going through a lot of really personal things at the time. And one night, I remember being at work in the middle of filling up a box with nursing supplies and it felt, again... Exactly like it did before, like something from outside of me was just dropping information into me, just giving me information, pushing me on a path and telling me everything that you've believed up till now is bullshit. (laughs) And I didn't know what to make of that because that that idea in and of itself negated the idea of God, of the Holy Spirit, of everything I believed up until that point spiritually. However, the model for this thing happening to me before was that the Holy Spirit did it. And I just didn't know what to make of that. It was really wild to kind of sit with that idea alone. But uh, that was like an earth shattering moment to me. I, I, it hurt. It felt painful. But it was also freeing at the same time because it was like I've always thought I've had this safety net of going to heaven no matter what I do because I believe the right thing. But that safety net was also holding me back from so much that I didn't even understand until the moment it wasn't there anymore. And I could start to examine all the guilt that I felt over different things and realize that they're just bodily functions, that they're just part of growing up, they're part of being human, and that I was hating myself for things that literally everybody experiences. And, you know, I had to start picking up pieces and putting everything back together. It took so long for everything to fall into place in any kind of way that made sense to me. But there were some things that stood out right away. Like, I had been raised my entire life to believe that God created humans first and then created animals, well, not first, chronologically, I guess, but humans were like the goal. We were like, you know the top of the chain and everything, and that everything else on the planet was was created to serve us, and that was just how we looked at things. Like we are the ones that you know God sent His Son for, so we are the most important things, and everything else must just be kind of you know window dressing, must be kind of a garnish, something for us to enjoy and and say, "Wow, isn't God great?" Now let's kill this animal and eat it, and that all of a sudden stood out to me as wrong. And I'm not here to be preachy about being vegetarian or vegan or whatever, but that's just what seemed right to me at the time. That's just what made sense to me in the moment. It was like, I went from believing that God made animals for us to eat to believing that we were just here on this planet like they are, so I guess I should stop eating them. I should stop subjugating them in any way I can. And uh, that sent me down the road to becoming vegetarian and then eventually becoming vegan. And that's something that I can point back to every time anybody asked me why I made that choice. It's like, well, I stopped believing in God. And that was just the natural conclusion that I came to with the information that I had available to me. Um, yeah, there was just so many other things that that had to change and, and started to uh, started to make themselves known to me little bit by bit that, you know, now now my world can be different. I can claim a different reality because it's not what I thought it was. And uh, something that didn't change right away that took several years still was that uh, I remained straight edge after I stopped believing in God. And I think part of that had to do with me uh initially, I, would, I don't know. When I was younger, I was afraid of drugs. I was afraid of alcohol. I saw the way people acted on it in my family and in my personal life, and I just thought that it was scary. I didn't want anything to do with it. And then eventually somebody told me once I started listening to punk music that, oh, that makes you straight edge. So I thought... Well, there's a way to flip this now. I can take it from something that scares me to something I'm proud of, and something that I think makes me a good person. So I kind of clung to that identity, and not believing in God didn't change that. I still felt like, okay, well, this is what I can do. This is what I can be. Still, this still makes sense to me, and you know, I still had I had a good uh, friendship group and bands and stuff that were built up- upon that belief system that uh we had that in common, none of us drank, none of us did drugs, and we all felt good about that. Um but eventually that changed too and, and that that took another five years. So this whole thing you know happening at the Cleveland Clinic happened when I was 20 years old and around the time I was 25 was when a lot of my straight-edge friendships had just kind of naturally drifted apart. I'm still friends with those people. I still like those people. I have nothing negative to say about them. It is just not the lifestyle that I want to live. And it was something that became more and more clear to me that we were kind of just hanging out because we don't drink and not because we really love being around each other. And I started to find other groups of people that I really loved being around. I loved playing music with these people. I loved partying with them even though I was sober and they weren't, it didn't make a difference. It was just fun. I had a really good time with these people. And it was around this time that I started examining the idea very seriously of trying DMT. And I should back up a little bit because I should talk about the thing that put DMT on my radar. Um, around the time I was 18, when I was still very Christian, uh, I was about to graduate high school. A friend of mine that had graduated a few years before me uh, had moved down to Florida. And he had a very different lifestyle than mine. you know, he was involved in, like, the satanic church and... Uh, did rituals and things like that and stuff that kind of scared me at first but after a while of just being friends with them it became kind of normal and it kind of warmed me up to those ideas and made me less afraid of them because this person that i you know knew and cared about was involved in it so it really couldn't be that bad but still not at all what i thought not at all what i believed and i i thought you know i love him to death but i feel like he's probably going to end up in hell doing all the stuff that he's doing <laughs> But uh, right after he had moved to Florida, or not long after anyways, he got in a very bad car accident. Um, Somebody T-boned him, ran right into his side of the car, shattered his pelvis, uh, really, really messed him up. And it killed him for seven minutes. He was dead for seven minutes before he was revived. And... He had a, what I've now learned is called a transcendental near-death experience, where he left his body, and he was just a free-floating consciousness, and he explained to me that he experienced himself just as this consciousness floating through a desert, and in this desert a hooded figure approached him, he couldn't see the face at all, there was just a hood over the face, but uh, it was floating. as if it were standing but it had no legs and where its feet should have been there were two serpents that were winding through the sand and crossing over each other and making patterns in the sand and he explained this whole thing to me that how they had an exchange that didn't it wasn't verbal he just communicated like it like this thing just gave him information And to sum it up, because I don't remember it very well, I would really love to speak with him, actually, about this and maybe talk to him on here if he'd be willing. But um, he got the information from this being that what he was doing in his life was okay, that he was on his path, doing the right thing for himself, and he just needed to keep going. He had to go back and, and keep living his life and that he wasn't going to die now. He would, you know, eventually everybody will die. But you know, he's gonna go back for now and, and keep living in a body. So after he has this experience, that really rattled me for a while. It just like rattled around in my brain uh for years and years. But uh you know a couple months after he told me about that experience Um, he was explaining to me that, you know, he started, he always had smoked weed, but he started smoking a lot of weed around that time because of the pain that he was in. He didn't want to be on painkillers. So he decided that he wanted to smoke a lot of weed to deal with the pain and it helped and it, and it still does help him. Like his family, uh, I believe were, heavily involved with petitioning to get Ohio to have medicinal marijuana for that reason because he has chronic pain and the only thing that helps him that he doesn't get addicted to is marijuana. So yeah, regardless, he was getting weed from this guy at the time, I believe, or maybe just smoking weed to somebody. I can't remember. But somehow it came up that this person had DMT and he hit me up to ask me if I had ever heard of it before. And, you know, me being straight edge and uh, afraid of everything. I had no idea what he was talking about. So he kind of explained it to me that DMT is a drug that you're um, it's a chemical that your brain produces naturally in dream states and supposedly when you're born and when you die. So this friend of his was curious uh, since my friend had been dead before he wanted him to try DMT and see if it was anything comparable to what he experienced while he was on the other side, so to speak. And really, he didn't know what to do with this. He was kind of intimidated by it. And as far as I know, he never did it. But just that conversation with him alone sparked this interest in me. At 18, I became really interested in this chemical, just curious about it and, like, wondering what it could do, what it could be. And that rattled around in my head, along with his near-death experience... Until I was 25 and I reached that point that I was just discussing where I realized that uh, straight edge was just a label to me and not something that actually meant anything anymore, not something that served me in any way. And I was more trying to be of service to it. And that just didn't make sense to me because I was curious and wanted to know about DMT. I wanted to see if there was any way to peek beyond the curtain and see like what you see before you die or when you die or whatever this is. So uh, I decided I was going to do a bunch of research and I started digging into documentaries and reading articles on DMT and what it is and what I should expect. And, uh, because I was paranoid, I decided that I wanted to start doing yoga and meditate because I figured that would help me get a better grip on my mind and keep me from going crazy. If anything went sideways, I took it very seriously. It wasn't a party thing for me. It was something that I really wanted to try to experience. So after this ridiculous amount of preparation, I found some and I tried it and I had the most insane experience that I can't begin to explain I didn't blast off all the way as people say but I did I uh, feel like I got a little peek behind the curtain the first time you know like I felt like when I closed my eyes I could see the wiring under the board so to speak like uh, I felt like I was looking at an organic machine that was being manned by machine elves and that's something that i hear is so typical of dmt but this is the only time i experienced it. i've smoked dmt several times since then and that was the only time i ever saw the machine elves um but they didn't notice me i, I really was just kind of taken aback as to what i was seeing everything looked kind of black and white but like everything was i, I don't know it, i looked like it, it looked like i was looking at coding in some way shape or form but um yeah, that, that trip dissipated pretty quickly, and it left me with a lot of questions. Uh, so naturally, I just kept doing more. I smoked, not, I mean, not that night, but I, you know, smoked it regularly. I had bought a decent amount at the time, so I figured I, I'll smoke this up and then see if I can find some more if I don't have the answers I'm looking for. So I kept at it, and I broke through a few times. I, you know, saw different uh Kind of Egyptian motifs I saw, like desert uh desert scenery and pyramids and things in certain trips. And then uh at some point what started happening was every time I smoked, I would see these three beings or entities. They didn't have bodies, they were just like presences, and I felt all three of them, and they just looked like rifts in reality, like like just cuts in like my visible reality. And uh, the one in the middle, it was always in the middle, that would do most of the interacting with me was a female entity. And the other two on the sides were male. And the one on the left would interact with me some. And the one on the right, I ne- I almost never interacted with. I don't remember any conversations with him whatsoever. But... Um, the female was very attentive to me and very like asking me how I was doing and making sure I was okay. I would ask her questions and she would just be like, yeah, of course. Cause I didn't, I wasn't very spiritual at the time. I didn't have any framework for any of this that was going on. I I was, you know, still kind of clinging on to atheism because that's what felt right to me at the time. And, uh, but, but I still felt like these things were real. I didn't know how to, uh, how to make that make sense. But these things were real, but also I don't believe in anything else. So I was kind of at an agnostic point, I guess. But like I said, I didn't have any spiritual framework for any of this. So I was just asking these beings questions like, is it okay that I'm playing in punk bands? And they were like, yeah, of course, you're having fun. Just keep doing it. Like, you're on your path. Keep moving forward. We're not going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Uh Yeah, they felt like it was just kind of matter of fact like that. And then the the guy on the left like while i was trying to be serious would be like showing me random stuff i felt like he would reach around the woman like with a non-existent hand and just show me you know some creature that i couldn't fathom existing that was made of shapes that don't exist on this plane And that was kind of my relationship with him. He would just kind of make me laugh and forget the serious things I was trying to think about because they weren't important. I wasn't asking any important questions. So he was like, I don't know. Look at this. Shut up. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, DMT really did a lot for me. And I'm not going to sit here and tell anybody who listens to this to do psychedelics because um, that's not the point of this. I'm just telling you what my experience was. And in my experience, uh, it helped me a lot. I, I, I went through breakups that it helped me through. I went through uh, different existential crises. Crises. I don't know how you say that. But uh, <laughs> I went through a lot. And these little quick 10, 20-minute trips would help me process things that sometimes it would take months for me to get over without it, you know? And it didn't feel like a crutch, it just felt like a cheat. Like it felt like a cheat code to, to emotional processing and to rising above situations that I was wallowing in. And it kind of showed me that you have an option. It doesn't matter, like, it, it, eventually the DMT wasn't necessary. It was more like, I know that I can rise above this quickly uh, if I just changed my view on it and that's what DMT showed me. So even without smoking it, I was able to do that in certain situations and it was great. Um, from DMT, I moved into, uh, doing a little bit of acid, uh, kind of a lot of acid, more acid than DMT, honestly, because that was the party drug for me. That was what made me want to go nuts and have fun. Uh, I did learn things on asset. I was able to connect to people and love people that in my sober life, I had, had no uh, intention of doing either of those things, you know. Uh, so it showed me that things were possible. and you know, again, kind of the same lessons I was learning from DMT. And then uh, my net, my last step really was uh, moving into weed. I started smoking weed, which is kind of the backwards gateway drug thing that you're all that you know everybody's taught about. But um, anyways, so while I was smoking DMT, I lived with this person named Roxanne Starnik, and she's wonderful. Uh, I've actually already recorded an interview with her, and she will be my first guest on this show whenever I get around to posting all of these. Um, We had a lovely conversation, And uh, she's the one that really pointed me in the direction of a lot of the spiritual stuff I'm coming into contact with now. And it all kind of started at this point in time because I was seeing these entities that I was just describing on DMT. And when I would tell her about it, she was like, oh, I've never done DMT before, but I have a pretty regular meditation practice. And when I get into the deepest parts of my meditation I see things like that as well. I interact with beings that don't have bodies, and I get information that I would have no way of knowing, and uh, all these just interesting things kind of pour into me. And that kind of you know, broke it for me. It was like, oh wow, this stuff is possible without DMT, without tripping, like you don't need psychedelics to have this experience. And that's something that would rattle around in my brain for a very long time. I didn't know what to do with it. That was basically like a monolith moment where I saw the thing that was amazing and life-changing. And I just said, well, I'll keep that in mind. And I just kept going back to living the way that I was living without changing anything. But I talked to so many people about that. I would ask people, anybody who was into psychedelics, like, how do you feel about meditation? And, you know, you get mixed responses from that all over. But, um... Anyways, we can kind of fast forward a little bit in my life here. Um, Moving on, I spent about three more years in Cleveland playing music, doing a lot of psychedelics, living a really fun and crazy lifestyle that I still cherish the memories of right now. I met a lot of wonderful people. I got to see the whole country and travel around a lot and uh, it eventually came time for me to not live in Cleveland anymore. I started to feel it. Everything around me was changing in a way that I no longer felt a part of, and I felt like I needed to make some decisions, and some people I was playing in a band with had um, planned to move to Australia, and that sounded great to me, so I figured I would try to do the same thing as well. Uh, My path to doing that, though, was a lot different from a lot of theirs because they were able to save money and for some reason, even though I had really cheap rent, I wasn't. And also I just didn't wanna stay where I was any longer. So I kinda wanted to take the most drastic route possible and I decided after discussing things with some people that I should sell everything I owned that didn't fit into the car that I just bought and uh, move into my car, drive out to the west coast and trim weed and sell and save up as much money as I could to try to get an Australian visa and go stay over there for a while. So that's what I did. And uh, in the process of trying to make that happen though, I started to panic quite a bit. Um, there's one time that I remember very specifically that I was headed to my last day of work and uh, I had sold most everything And I was just thinking on the highway uh, that I was throwing my entire life away, that I was getting rid of all of the security that I had built up, that all of the friends and things that I had come to cherish so much in this town, I was just going to leave behind. And just because what? I like to smoke weed now. And I think that that is going to pave the way to a better life for me. And I was just really mocking myself and like parenting myself and making myself feel really guilty and spiraling out of control on this. And in the middle of all this, I just decided I need to get out of my head. So I turn on the radio and I don't ever listen to the radio or I didn't at the time. I do more now, but uh, I was always listening to CDs and things. But regardless, I I turn on the radio just as a reflex and right as I hit the button, the uh, coughing from the beginning of Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath comes on. I hear Ozzy Osbourne coughing and then I hear that riff and it just all kinda hits me. Like this is a love song to weed. The very thing I'm spiraling out of control about at this moment. And everything in this song just says, let go and let it happen. So I'm gonna do that. <laughs> and I listened, I listened to maybe the worst source of information you can go for, Ozzy Osbourne, but I, uh, it worked out, it worked out great. And that nudge pushed me there. And and again, there was another moment where it felt like something outside of me dropped this song in my lap, you know, made me push the button on the radio at the exact time that I would hear the thing that I needed to hear to get me out of this funk and into the mode of being excited again. I just became excited in that moment. Like, fuck yeah, I am going to do this. And I did. And it was great. And I traveled all over the country. I I drove to the West Coast by myself. Uh, I flew from there to Australia. I got to stop in China for a day to visit a friend there, which that was also like a weird little miracle that happened that I just happened to get a flight with a layover in the town that my friend was living in at the time. And I went from there to Australia, spent five months there, toured there, met so many amazing people, played all of these shows, then went to Europe after that. We did a little tour in Europe and then came back to North America and I felt depressed. (laughs) I had just done... Everything that I thought that I wanted to do since I started playing music. I wanted to tour the world so bad. I wanted to see the world, go meet all these people, do all these different things. And I thought that would make me happy. I thought that that would make me a different person, that that would make me into who I was meant to be, and that nobody could shake me in any way, shape, or form once I had accomplished those things. And then when I did accomplish those things... I realized that not much had changed. I knew some great people. I had a little more information in my head, maybe a little bit of lived experience and wisdom. But at my core, I was the same person. I was still vulnerable. I had the same insecurities. Nothing really changed. And that was a big wake-up call to me. It it really made me re-examine my life once again. And start trying to figure out, well, if that's not going to do it, if that's not going to make me happy, then what will? And uh once I started getting more into spiritual teachings, this moment is kind of referred to in a lot of people's lives as the mountaintop moment. You know, it's the moment where you get everything you hope for and you realize that it doesn't do anything for you, that you climbed all the way up to the top of this mountain and you realize that there's nothing there. And That's what happened to me. Fortunately, my mountain was pretty small. I mean, it it was something I was very fortunate and wonderful. Like, it was a great experience in my life. And I'm very lucky to have had that happen and to have made that happen. But also, it wasn't like the highest hill there was. There are people who you know clamor their entire lives to make millions of dollars and then they get there and they don't have the clarity to see that there's nothing there so they keep going and going and going and right now we have a couple of billionaires battling it out to see who can get a contract to make the next moon rover and they're all just scrambling for the thing that they think is going to make them happy because owning you know most of the labor in the entire country and uh, hoarding wealth from the entire world uh, isn't doing it for them, apparently. So at least I didn't have to go a mountain that high. I'm thankful for that. But so, yeah, I had my little mountaintop moment and realized that I needed to figure something else out. So uh, at this point, my partner and I, we packed up and uh, moved into a car again. And uh, headed out west and settled in Olympia, uh, Olympia, Washington. And from there, I just kind of got my bearings again. It was kind of figuring out, like, okay, I've done this thing. I've lived this life of traveling and doing all these amazing things. So now what do I want? And it took me a little bit to figure that out. Um, I just started working regular jobs, mindless jobs. I'd always worked in print shops. So... I got a job screen printing out there after we got settled in and uh, I don't know at that at that print shop I just started listening to a lot of podcasts and I didn't know what I was even interested in anymore other than music so uh, I kind of fell back on stand-up comedy I started listening to stand-up comedians talk and the two that I liked a lot were Duncan Trussell and Pete Holmes so I listen to their podcasts all the time and in their podcasts they would talk about really crazy things. They would talk about existential things and what people thought the universe was like. They would talk about different spiritual concepts while talking to stand-up comedians. And all these different things would come out. And something that both of them started doing all the time that I noticed was, quote, this guy called Ram Das. And uh, they would just say things that this guy had said over and over again, and they all just rang so true to me. They felt really uh, intense and real and like something I couldn't ignore. And after several listening to several of these things and hearing that name over and over and over again, I decided to start doing some research on this guy. And immediately his story clicked with me because uh, Ram Dass, original name was Richard Alpert. He was a Harvard professor at the same time that Timothy Leary was. And both of them started getting into researching psychedelics at the same time. And uh, through the process of doing all of this, um, I I would recommend that you actually look up Ram Dass' story if you're interested in this. Because I don't want to waste too much time just explaining his story. But essentially, uh, him and Timothy Leary split and went different ways. Timothy Leary... Uh, Went the pop culture route where he was selling acid to the Beatles and you know uh, Peter and Jane Fonda and all these other people in Hollywood and uh, He really made a life out of the pop culture side of it. Whereas Ram Dass Richard Alpert decided he wanted to know what this meant he felt just as I had in the past uh, that there was more to this and that this was the key to something and That suspicion was only deepened when he was given the Tibetan Book of the Dead, him and Timothy Leary both, and when they read it, they encountered a lot of the things that they thought were indescribable about some insane trips that they had had together. So they released the Tibetan Book of the Dead as the uh, psychedelic experience, I believe it's called, and it's pretty good. Uh, Not my favorite because it's uh, a little prior to... uh, Ram Dass really digging into his spiritual teachings that he would come into later. But it's still worth a read. It's it's pretty interesting if you're into tripping and have ever read the Tibetan Book of the Dead to see the parallels that they draw. But um, anyways, after he had this dr- fall in his lap, he started to understand that maybe there's something more to this. So he started going all over India and, you know, giving acid to different gurus and swamis and things. And eventually in his trip... After he had given up, he met the follower of this guy that he could just look at this guy and see that this guy knew. Um, and he didn't know what he knew. He didn't know how he knew. But he knew that he saw a lost look in everybody's eye that he had ever met Uh, All the way from when he was a kid up to when he was a professor at Harvard He said that you know thinking being in the psychology department at Harvard that he had made it But he would look around and he would see the same lost look in everybody's eye all of these doctors and professors up at the highest level uh, Of education of academia and they all looked lost and just as lost as he felt and you know The only time he felt like he was getting a glimpse of the truth was when he was on these psychedelics, but he knew there had to be more to it than that. And, you know, on this whole trip in India, he just kept finding more and more people that looked lost and felt lost and couldn't give him answers until he met this guy that he said... He could just look in this guy's eyes and tell he knew. He knew something. He didn't know what, but he knew something. And eventually, he follows this guy around until he meets his guru. And his guru is a guy named Neem Karoli Baba, who passed away several years ago. I believe in the 70s. And, uh, but the stories about this guy are insane. And my initial reaction to hearing that this guy was about to tell me about his guru was a little bit of my stomach sinking because in the West... And in capitalism, especially modern day, uh, the word guru just has a nasty, nasty stink on it. You know, it's uh, usually somebody who's trying to manipulate somebody for money, somebody who thinks way too highly of themselves, somebody who's trying to have sex with all of his followers. There's always something like that. You never hear good stories about a guru in the West But doing a little bit more research and digging into more of what Ramdas was saying and what his guru was saying, I found out quickly that that is not the truth of the tradition. That is not the truth of the history. Because over here, gurus are trying to tell you how to be, what to do, what's right and what's wrong, and basically do the same things that priests and pastors and all of the other oppressive religious figures in our lives do. And... That's just not what their role is in reality. Uh Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, or Maharaji, whatever you'd like to call him, he taught people from all different backgrounds, from all different religions and spiritual persuasions, uh, every different class segment that all that they needed was inside of them, essentially. He was just a mirror for them. He was there to show them what was possible, to show them their sticking points, and to... Uh, really just help them transcend in any way that they could themselves experience and he's just a catalyst he isn't the answer he's just somebody who's there to facilitate and he wasn't ripping anybody off he wasn't asking for anything the only thing this guy owned was a blanket he would just wander around India and help people out and point out where people needed help and uh, I don't know the thing that most people talk about when they talk about maharaji the people that met him the a lot, there's a lot of stories of miracles and really insane things that sound impossible but the sincerity that these people tell these things and these stories with just really makes them believable to me it makes them something that makes me think that there really is something to this but beyond that the thing that all these people point to is that the miracles and all of that stuff is really just the tip of the iceberg. Really the the thing that made him so different and made him transform so many people's lives was love just poured out of this man. He loved everyone he came in contact with unconditionally. And that didn't always look like being affectionate and cuddly. And he was that sometimes, but he would also be very frank with people, very straightforward. He would mess with people. He would make people laugh. He, uh, He had... A very wild attitude about him but you felt under all of it love and I don't know I've heard and read a lot of stories about this guy and uh, I've even seen him once on an acid trip that I was on but <laughs> uh, that's that's a little later I'm gonna try to wrap up my story real quick and get to where I'm where we can close this out so basically after learning about all of these different things learning about Ram Dass, I started Searching for other spiritual teachings. I started digging into the things that he would talk about, like the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana. And, uh, you know, I started looking into different writings by Buddhist teachers. I started looking at the Kabbalion, which is one of the biggest uh, or best selling. Uh, occult books of all time, I just found out recently, I want to do an episode on the Kabalyan. I started digging into reincarnation and like the theories behind that. And all of these things that really just started ringing so true to me. And looking at things from every different angle, I'm reading about Sufis and, and, you know, different sections of Islam like that. And uh, I don't know, all of this stuff is just so experiential and so different from what we were taught in the West, religion is supposed to be. I was always raised that religion is a very rigid thing. It's a set of rules, essentially, that guide you to the goalpost of heaven. And all of these other like mystic practices are all about experience. It's all about what you actually experience. Faith itself is not such an important part of that doctrine because the faith that most people want you to have when it comes to organized religion is the faith in what the pastor is telling you, the faith in what the priest or, you know, the rabbi is saying to you and that you'll take it as truth and you will, you know, subjugate yourself to whatever that person says And that's just not what it's about. It's about your own experience. You know, the the Sufis have a saying that there are as many paths to God as there are people on the planet. And that is exactly how I feel. I feel like we are all on our own path and no two of us are ever going to see things exactly the same way. But we can have our own experiences of the same thing that just has a slightly different lens on it. And that's okay. That's all right. That's what we're here for. We're here to experience. We're here to see what this is, what what we can make of this experience, you know? Um, so, anyways, I'm coming in contact with all these teachings, like I said, and I'm in Olympia at the time, and I decide that now is the time to start trying psychedelics again. Because in all the time I'd been traveling, I hadn't been messing with psychedelics whatsoever. So, I got a hold of some LSD, and... Whatever, I don't know if it was the teachings themselves that made it different or if what I got out there was way more pure or, you know, stronger than anything else I've ever had. But every time I have taken LSD since I have come across these teachings, uh, I have had a life transforming experience that allowed me to live out the ideas that I was grasping and that's what I was asking for you know I would meditate before I would take this LSD and then I would ask at the end for clarity for experience of the things that I had uh, grasped the concepts of but you know understanding and reading something in a book are completely different than living them out and anytime I asked for that and and took LSD I got it that's what I got I got exactly what I asked for and more in some situations. So much more. Sometimes it was scary, but it was always wonderful at the end. It always brought such a clear picture at the end of my connection to everything. It's going to start sounding real typical hippie shit right now, but that's just what it is. is. That is literally what I discovered on this, is that I believe after all of this research, all of this reading... That the things that I experience, the feelings I have, the connections that I make on psychedelics are real. They are a connection to something else. And that something else is the connection that we all share, that everything in reality shares. And my outlook on the world now is one that does include God. But the God that I am including in this looks nothing like the God I was raised to believe in. I was raised to believe that God was a being outside of us who created everything and watches us from some high vantage point where he can see everything. And it's a he, first of all, that's crazy. And uh, he makes rules that we have to follow. And, you know, there's a hell that he created for us and all of these different things. And that just doesn't even make any sense to me anymore. Um, The worldview I'm left with after all of this is that we are all God. God made itself into everything that exists in the universe, and maybe other universes as well, maybe expanding to several universes, if that's even fathomable to you. But outside of time, outside of space, outside of everything there is, there is only this one consciousness, that We refer to as God and that is what makes up absolutely everything and the space between everything and there is nothing but that that exists and our reason for existing is to Feel separate from that and learn what it means to be that so that we can take that knowledge back to that collective that is all just one thing and have this experience to present and this evolutionary process and who knows who knows what the exact cycles of this are but I don't know this all of these different teachings I run into all of them take reincarnation as fact and that's something that really stands out to me and it feels very real to me that we live over and over again and that there is no hell because there is no consequences like how Could you make something out of yourself as God or consciousness or source, whatever you want to call it? How could you make something out of yourself and then punish that thing for thinking it's not you when you've programmed it to not know that it's you? (laughs) You know, how could you punish anything like that? Everything that's happening is just part of this one thing experiencing itself. And. You know, that viewpoint can be dangerous to some people. It sounds like it's a very easy way to spiritually bypass things. But I think it's all the more reason to try to make this world a better place, to make everything better, to treat each other like we are all one thing, to look each other in the eye and see that we are sharing more than just air here. We are sharing more than just a planet. We are sharing a consciousness. We are sharing experience. We are sharing everything and we are all the same thing. And that is something that stood out to me so many times in different uh, psychedelic trips. It's something that now I can experience sober in regular meditation. I feel like I contact things that show me that all the time. Uh, I'm having all of these crazy experiences inside of psychedelics, inside of these teachings and outside of them all. And it's something that I just can't shut up about and it's what I believe I want to do with my life now. I want to exude love. I want to become love in every way, shape, and form that I can. I want to love everyone around me. I want to get rid of the divisiveness in my life. I want to learn as much as I can about the way that the world works and see things from as many people's point of views as possible while still understanding that we are all just here to experience what it is that we are here to experience. You know, there's, there's really no other way around it. Like that's just the way it is. And, uh, I don't know, I guess I could climb off of my soapbox now and start wrapping this up. Um, I want to thank you so much for listening to this. And if you've made it this far, double thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Um, I would love to hear from you. I'd love for you to reach out to me. Uh, I have the Instagram account uh, at monolithseeker and the same on Twitter at monolithseeker as well. Um, You can get a hold of me on there. You can send me an email um, at monolithseekerpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Feel free to hit me up for anything. Um, We can have private discussions about these kinds of things. We can set up something that we can talk on here if you would like to. If you have suggestions of other people for me to speak to, that would be wonderful. Uh, Books that I should read, anything you want me to talk about. Uh, yeah, I'm down. I'm just open to do this. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to spend my time and creativity lately. So if this, if you can consider this creativity, just talking into a microphone about things. Um, But yeah, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, Much love to you and take care of yourselves uh, until next time, which... I should say, I don't know when that's going to be. I'm not going to be releasing these things with any kind of regularity. I'm just doing them as they feel right. So again, (laughs) thank you so much. And uh, until next time.